Well, hello and welcome to this week's edition of the Plain Talking UK podcast. Excuse me, my name's Neville Bounds and it's episode 329. Uh, we've got a very exciting show this week, uh, but unfortunately there's sad news as it's announced that the Queen of the Skies production line is officially retired and there's a glimpse into the post-pandemic world for business class. In the military segment, the United States Air Force intercepts an Iranian passenger jet jet and more countries join Britain to make the next generation Tempest fighter. We talked to Jack about his amazing achievement in the world of flying and in the latest plane truths, Captain Al talks bomb threats. Well, joining me in this, yes, <laughs> and joining me over in the PTU UK studio is Matt Smith. Well, hello everyone. Hello. It's uh, we, we, we're a bit light today, aren't we, mate? <laughs> yes. There's been lots of last-minute faffing about changes of personnel, content, you name it. Mm. Um, we are expecting an appearance from Carlos at some point uh, during the show, and if we can make it, that would be great. Um, so, <laughs> look forward not. to uh, look forward to uh, seeing him. So, what you've been up to this week, uh, Matt? Me, well, I, I just the same thing really. I sort of still on furlough with the the coach company, so I'm uh, still working for a company called Naked Wines. Just basically sort of working in their delivery team, dealing with bits and pieces like that. So still, still there, still doing that. Uh, really enjoying it, actually. I had no idea that working delivery could be so interesting. There's yeah, a surprise for you. <laughs> Absolutely. Absolutely. Yeah. yeah. I, I must admit, I must. I, I don't know quite what's happened because I, I, so many of my friends have sort of managed like the the target. I don't know whether it's just because I've joined them that suddenly all of my friends are getting like targeted ads as a result. I don't know. Quite. Oh, <laughs> yes. I keep getting messages from people saying I, I keep getting these adverts. What's that all about? It's not my fault. I promise. Yeah. Um, but, oh, uh, there we are. What about you, Dev? What have you been up to this week? Um, yeah, been working this week, so we're all back at work full time as of Monday of this week, which was great. So I did a bit of flying. Uh, yesterday and today so went up to newcastle and back uh from heathrow with the british airways boys obviously uh we'll talk about that a bit later on because okay. there's some quite major changes at heathrow uh compared oh, really? to when i did my last nev's passenger experience so quite a lot happening there so uh yeah so that was all uh, all good stuff and um but yes when i arrived back it was 36 degrees celsius i know it's it's been a warm a day today hasn't it it yes, absolutely. Has. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. Uh, well, we've got uh, a special guest with us. I suppose we ought to introduce him, really. Please do. Indeed. So some of you may remember from last week, uh, there was a young lad who basically became Britain's youngest qualified pilot. Um, and uh, as he's a local lad to us and he's a, a very nice chap, we sent him a message and here he is now. So hello, Jack. Welcome. Hello. Thank you. <laughs> so we're going to have a little chat uh, with you if we may, because as I say, this is an incredible yeah. achievement um, to, to have done it. Uh, and um, well, let's start with the obvious one. So th- obviously there, there's clearly a, a passion slash interest in flying yeah. there for you. So, I mean, how did this all come about? So when I was about two years old, I went to Claxton Air Show, I think it was. Oh, yeah. And I saw my first Red Arrows, Red Arrows display. And I think from there I got hooked. Oh. And since uh, just aviation has grown, and since being in Burston, um, there's Norfolk Gliding Club at Tippin Airfield, um, and off, off a certain runway, uh, the tug and glider combination fly over my house, and I was keep I was seeing it, and I thought, you know what, I'd love to give that a go, and so I turned up. It was a January day, it wasn't very nice, um, and they cancelled flying, but um, I went to turn up, and then I, I got all the information I needed. 
then I got put on a friends and family from uh, one of the members at the club, one of the instructors. And then it just grew from there. And I've progressed through flying from the age of 11. And now on to the age of 14, I've flown flew survey. Wow. So, I mean, I mean, I don't, I, I, there's so many questions here really to start with. So, um, I mean, the, the, the age thing obviously is, I, I guess, a, 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 a subject that's a, a sort of difficult one, I suppose. So, I mean, what sort of challenges does that bring, obviously, when it comes to, to learning to fly? So, with the age thing, because I started at 11, I was, I was, so from the age, when I was about 13, I started to get to sort of expectation. Um, and about six, well, five, six months later, um, I was solo ready. But because of the age, I had to wait. So the gliding club got worried that I was going to get bored, which obviously wasn't because it's flying. Mm, it's amazing. Quite, yeah, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> um, but they uh, started to, to put new things towards me. So one of the main things was aerobatics, which is really fun. Um, and I did that, which was amazing. Um, and I want to progress to do that now. And that's probably what's the next thing going to be, trying to... Um, be one of the youngest uh, pilots in the UK to do aerobatics and compete and, and do air shows. My goodness, uh, I mean, it's just like I mean, Nev. Obviously, that, do do take some of the questions here. Yes, I mean, well, I'm not an aerobatic kind of chap. I'm more of a great <laughs> and level fellow with me gin and tonic, uh, you know. <laughs> uh, but um, yeah, it was fantastic. So, can you tell us a bit about uh, the junior training scheme at the uh, Norfolk Gliding Cart Club where you were? Yeah, so um, it's £46 per month, um, which includes uh, 60 flights a year, which doesn't seem a lot, but it is, actually, um, because each time you go, you're able to fly twice, and each flight you get, you get up to half an hour free, and and once you go over the half an hour, you pay from the zero mark, which is for a two-seat, so it's probably about 50p a minute, I think it is, Um and you can go up five. Uh, you can go there five times a month to fly, but as many times as you want to go and help. So I mean, yeah. so, tell you what, I was just interested because that, those sort of sums of money. I mean, that that's quite manageable, isn't it, compared yeah. to the the cost of a, a, you know starting to a, a PPL uh, in a fixed wing powered aircraft. So um, if they're talking about those sorts of figures, then that that's a great incentive to start, isn't it? Oh, God, yeah, yeah, and it's completely affordable. And I think what the good thing is as well is that the gliding club's a community, so everyone chips in, and unlike a flying school that you only really tend to meet your instructor, maybe a couple other people who are learning and flying, it's a whole community, so you you get to meet everyone and then learn the skills um, of ground handling, how gliders work, you know, how to fix them, and then to rig and de-rig. So if a glider lands out in a field, which... Which is very normal. Um, we have like a trailer, which we can take the wings off, the tailplane off, and then we we'll push it in, and we learn how to do that and all yeah. the basic ground handling. That's fantastic. And also, of course, when you want to, if you want to go on to, you know, Piper or Cessna or whatever afterwards, yeah. having that uh, grounding in gliding is fantastically important, isn't it? So it's a yeah opportunity. Yeah, oh, yeah. I think uh, adding to the getting onto the PPL, you're like the gliding part. You're learning. Um, about the basic flying skills. And then if you want to move on to the PPL, uh, you only have to learn about the engine management, which I think is a very good way of learning how to start to fly. 
Yeah, I, I'm going to I'm going uh, I'm going to bring your mum in on this one actually because I mean you, you, <laughs> I mean this is quite quite a, a a decision to make really I suppose from uh, there for so the the lovely uh, the everyone is is here as well now obviously he's been clearly obsessed with aviation from you know almost birth um, I mean how does it make, I mean how did it make you feel I mean because it, it's like. <laughs> Uh, th- these things always in- inhale, you know, entail risks, I suppose, and there is that sort of yeah. alarm bell as a mum that sort of kicks yeah. in. Um, Absolutely, and I and I think like right from the start. I mean, we went to inquire at the club. He was just over eleven, and um, they really liked him. And they, he was young for them to take, but they did like a safeguarding thing and made me feel really reassured about it. And basically, and I did do that old kind of thing. But you're only eleven, and you're going up there in a plane, and you know, this could crash, you can't, or like freaking out. And he just said, look, mum, I'm just going to do it. So you're just going to have to be okay with it. And he's absolutely right, you know, and we're, we're so from, you know, I'm hardworking, you know, single parent family, this sort of thing, you know, you'd think, oh, it's not, there's no way he could learn to fly. Where am I going to fund that? But actually, you know, with the scheme and everything, it's really affordable. I mean, they're so, they're very professional, but they're so kind of like laid back. There's no, oh yeah, he's doing something really dangerous. I mean, obviously he is, but they, they just put you at ease and yeah. I suppose it's all about managed, it's it's all about managed risk, I suppose as well, isn't it? Yeah. And also very often the the most dangerous part is the journey to the airfield, isn't it? (laughs) Exactly. And I thought that as well. I thought, you know, he could take up any hobby. He could be motorbikes, quad bikes, um, go-karts, you know. Boats, anything like that, anything's got a, or, you know, even the BMXs and stuff like that. But actually, what he does, accident for accident, is probably, yeah. you know, there aren't any. So it's also the, it's extremely well regulated and, and the training's first class as well, isn't it? Yeah. yeah. And the first time I saw him go up, I was like complete bag of nerves and I just used to drop him off because I couldn't bear to stay there and I'd just be like, thank God I can go and pick him up. I've got the call. <laughs> and then it's just got better and better and obviously seeing him do his solo I went right back to that moment of when I first left him there and I was literally hot in my mouth and wanted to pass out and then do you know he's got it they've all had faith in him doing it he's been they've been saying he's been able to go solo expectation for about eight months or so now so yeah he's I feel okay because he's he's good at it and he's and they, they all believe in him so this is his dream and he's got to live it Absolutely. Well, I mean, that's a, that's a lovely uh, that's a lovely way to sort of look at it, really. And uh, he's, you're you're a very lucky boy, Jack. I have to be honest, because I, I I don't know many mums that would be quite so supportive when it well, comes yeah. to we're something like that. Kind of, we're quite kind of like seize the day adventure type people go with what the day brings, and that's all part of it. So, and you yeah. know, and he wants to be an airline pilot when he's older. That's his career path. So great he learns how to fly now fantastic absolutely in fact actually um so uh, somebody in the chat room here has sort of more or less asked that question to you jack saying uh, uh, what's jack's final goal with flying that's from katie finch yeah um that going into the commercial flying is will be the final goal but um i think we being outside the commercial flying uh, part i want to do uh, aerobatic com- competitions again, mm. not with the straight and level. I'm kind of like a, I, I, I seek adrenaline in a way. Like I love the adrenaline side of things, and it, the excitement things. Like um, not the stuff with, which would, would necessarily like 
kill me it's the stuff <laughs> it's the <laughs> it's, say it's, that it's, out loud <laughs> it, it's the it's the it's the stuff that would like so. yeah well it, it's the stuff which would make would realize okay that's a very cool sport and it's not an everyday sport as well yeah yeah i mean it's, it's definitely an unusual hobby isn't it um, so well, 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 while, while we're doing the questions uh, from the chat room here, so Tony S is just saying, uh, Jack, what do your school friends think of your achievement? Is it cool or geeky uh, to be a young glider pilot? I think it's cool, by the way. So they... <laughs> yeah, my, my, a lot of my friends aren't very supportive, actually. Um, I think I, I posted that I'm going on here on my Instagram um, a couple of minutes ago, and um, I think a couple of my friends are watching. Oh. Um, so if so, hi. <laughs> um, <laughs> And Hi, yeah, they... yeah, oh no, <laughs> sorry, yeah, <laughs> <laughs> yeah, but I, I, they, they think it's very cool. Um, some of them aren't too keen on flying, mm. um, but they they are supportive. Um, some of them don't trust it because I showed them that well, the gliders are held together by wing roots and everything, but there's a gap which we cover by tape, and they think gliders are held together by tape, which wow. they're not. <laughs> Um, and some of them don't get the concept of gliders being able to fly without an engine, and I think the winds has to there has to be wind for a glider to go. But it's the combination of a wing of a wing working. Wow. Okay. So I mean, it's uh, uh, one more question actually from the chat room again here, as this is coming from Stephen H. Is saying like, has Mum flown with you yet, Jack, or, or will she do so when you've got your rating? Well, um, she's flown in a Grob One A Nine uh, most glider with a qualified instructor but um she once once i get my passenger rating or basic instruction rating i will definitely take her up but i've got to get 50 hours solo and b16 um and my mum is terrified literally terrified to go up but i'm going to force her yeah that, 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 that's it's that's the last pressure <laughs> absolutely uh, well i see that we've just been joined by our illustrious leader he's uh, finally finished work and has joined us hello carlos Good evening, good evening, hello everyone, welcome, hello, welcome to me, welcome to everyone, yeah, I thought I'd join you oh, now. That's good of you, but, um, uh, go on, uh, well you might ask a, Jack, a question to Jack then please. Well, uh, well I just want to say thanks Jack for, uh, for agreeing to come on the show, yeah, and uh, yes, lovely to see you on here, and, and well done on your achievement, absolutely Thank you. fantastic. Actually one of the questions I was going to ask you Jack was uh, one of the, the very fond memories I have on one of my first solo flights that I'd done in the 150 was being in the air at the same time as a Chinook. Now, obviously, we're lucky in the uh, east of England here. We've got Chinooks and Ospreys and everything, everything flying around, especially this week. It's been really busy for military yeah. stuff. Is there anything that uh, you've seen from uh, your your cockpit as such when you've been flying the glider in and around East Anglia? Yes. Yeah, so um, on my second solo, which I got to about 3,500 feet, and I was cruising along heading, uh, I think, uh, heading out to the west, and I saw out of RF Middenhall, there was that on that day, they were very, being very busy, like early in the morning, there was a lot of military jets flying around. I think it was uh, some of the F 15s from Lake and Heath. But um, on, my on my second solo, I actually had um, two KC 135s fly off my wing, which is really cool. And they were <laughs> probably about two miles away, but from up there, it's so close, and just able to see them is absolutely amazing. Yeah, yeah, that's yeah. definitely that's one of the things you can't miss the KC one thirty five, definitely. Yeah. 
especially with the smoke trials falling behind the engines. But, uh... Yeah, <laughs> well, you're not mentioning that 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 terrible word chemtrails there, are you? Is that no, <laughs> no, 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 <laughs> that thing that doesn't happen. Um, yeah. <laughs> uh, well, and now there's some guy called Armando who. Um, I, I think I've heard of him, um, but he was, he was saying, for, for Jack, what's it like now being in the national spotlight? <laughs> <laughs> well, um, I was um, in Dis uh, with a couple of friends. Uh, I think it was the day after um, mm. I was in the news, and I got recognised standing outside Greg's. Oh, well, the, well there's a claim yeah. to fame. <laughs> I know. Um, <laughs> Yeah, um, yeah, yeah. The most I, I, thing ever, there yeah. was this a middle-aged couple come up to yeah. me and said, well, "Weren't you the young lad out of the news, uh, the young pilot out of the news?" And I said, "Yes." And I stood there for about five minutes speaking to them about it. And uh, they had, um, I think, uh, either a son. Uh, yeah, they had a son uh, wanting to go into flying. Oh, and I wow. said they'd be more than welcome to come up to the club and have a flight. Very cool. So yeah. I mean, now, there's, there's loads of people in the chat room uh, here. Now, there's one guy that you, you won't have, well, you may have done. So if, if you haven't listened to, then I strongly recommend you listen to this. It's a fantastic podcast called the uh, the Airline Pilot Guy Show. And uh, Captain Jeff has uh, just joined us in the chat room here. He's saying, uh, I would advise he looks for other work at the moment. <laughs> this is in reply to, to the he's just like, he's, uh, uh, He seems like a decent person, not airline mat- pilot material at all. He's way too smart. Uh, so... <laughs> So there we go. It's uh, it's uh, it's yeah 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 yeah. Uh, the good news is, is with the airline pilot show, he's only correct fifty percent of the time. So okay. you know there is that to look forward <laughs> to. Uh, but uh, yeah, never. Have you got any more questions? No, I was just thinking. The other thing I was going to say uh, to you, Jack, is that uh, you're either going to be a, a broadcaster or an airline pilot because you've got a fantastic voice. Yeah, oh, thank you. Uh, so I think you will do very well there. And uh, one of these days, I'm sure you'll be flying with your mum on holiday, and you'll yeah. be in the, uh, the right or the left-hand seat. Yeah, I hope so. On an Airbus or a seven three seven. Yeah, absolutely. Well, I'll tell you actually, what. Actually, on on that. On that no, no, actually, has anyone asked a question yet to Jack? Whether uh, Jack is uh, a Boeing or an Airbus man? Oh. Jack, come on, Airbus <laughs> or Boeing? Uh, I'm, I'm wondering if I might get slaughtered for my decision. Yes. But... <laughs> Probably. Uh... Um, I have to say, I, I am a Boeing person. Oh. Yay! Yay! Right. Answer. Right. Okay. Yeah. <laughs> although, although some some of the Airbuses are nice, I'm a, I'm a Boeing person. Yeah. Right, okay. Correct answer. Yeah, <laughs> apparently, <laughs> apparently that's the correct answer. Uh, well, I mean, Jack, it's been so good to uh, to have you on here. I'll tell yeah, you what, so, where, you. so just just give us another plug for the, the club. Where is it that you fly? Tiffany Merfield, so Norfolk Gliding Club. Okie dokie. And uh, I... I it's uh we'll we'll have to take ourselves up to uh, we'll we'll have to come and when when all this is over we'll have to come and have a visit and uh, yeah of course have a look at the yeah, club yeah. And, and and see what it's all about so uh, definitely yes we will definitely do that yeah sorry lots of love in the chat room here everybody's saying how you slides here we go uh Myla's saying hooray boeing she's very exciting <laughs> uh lane is saying wow he really is smart choosing that so as clearly <laughs> clearly as far as our audience is concerned you've made the very correct decision now now nev there's one question that we always ask all of our pilots before uh, we let them escape <laughs> there is indeed and uh, given the opportunity to fly any aircraft whether it's current or retired civil or military what would be your choice jack i reckon i think my choice i, I think I'd, i have two um one i'd love to fly in the legend, legendary concord ah, you know yeah, experience that sort of flight and i've never 
as a recent disappointment, actually, I've never had a chance to fly on the 747. And as they're going out of business, I'd always wanted, I've, I'd have wanted to fly on one of those because they are the legendary queen of the skies. Yeah, in fact, when true. Carlos and I flew back from the Dubai Air Show, uh, was it back end of last year? Wasn't November, it? Yeah. yeah. Yeah, November. Uh, little did we know that was going to be our last flight ever on a mm. BA-747. Yeah. Uh, so, yeah, yeah, incredible. But uh, no, the 747 is a fine aircraft. Ne- nearly 50 years uh, of flying. Absolutely incredible. Yeah, yes, yeah, definitely. Definitely. Well, look, Jack, thank you very much for taking the time. Thank you to Aaron as well. Thank you for uh, allowing him to join us. Uh, Yeah, thank you. Thank you for having us on. Uh, No, an absolute pleasure. And uh, we'll have to have you on again. So next time you've uh, you've got our details now. So obviously, if you've yes, anything crops up, do let us know and uh, and we can have a chat again. It's actually uh, all the best for the future. Yeah, 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 thank you. Uh, One. Yeah, sorry, we've got it. So here we go. Uh, here's, here's an offer for you. Look, so Air Commander is saying if Jack's ever down South Wales, then I'll take him on a couple of um, of 747s. There you are, go. No. That's, that's, ah, that's awesome. Uh, have you ever seen the TV programme Plane Reclaimers on Quest? Uh, I- uh, actually, no. Yes, I have. Yeah, yeah, I, yeah. I have actually. Okay, yeah. Well, the, these guys are from there, basically. So if you're ever down in oh, Wales, okay, you, can go, yes. you can have a snack around one of the cockpits. So, okay. Uh, <laughs> you may as well take you up on that. One. Yeah. Absolutely. There's a nice got. We might be able to sort you out something else. Actually, thinking about it, so so leave us with stay in touch, and we'll we'll see, awesome, see if we can reward you. you reward you for very kindly joining us on on thank the show. Thank you so much. We're yeah, gonna, brilliant. We're, we're going to let you get off now. Thank you very much, Jack, for joining us, and uh, good luck with your future endeavours. Brilliant. Thank you. Yeah. Thank you for having me on. You're and very welcome. Jack. Cheers. Take care. Okay. Bye. Good luck to all you. Thank you. Uh, bye bye. Bye. Right. Okay. We're going to bash on then, Carlos. Let's do some aviation news. Yes, we're going to move on then with the show. Yeah, thanks for that. That's very kind of you. I know I was late to the party, but there. Anyway, this first story. the briefing, that's the trouble. (laughs) Is on the flightglobal.com website, and uh, Boeing confirms speculation that it will end the 747 production in 2022, 53 years after the type's first flight in 1969. In light of the current market dynamics and outlook, they said we complete uh, a complete or complete production of the iconic 747 in 2022, said Chief Executive David Calhoun. Boeing has pushed back its first 777X delivery, which is now targeted for 2022, a delay of up to a year on that. So Boeing has also cut production rates for this 787 uh, from 14 to 6 aircraft monthly, and the combined 777 and 777X from 5 to 2 jets monthly for 2021. The company will all uh, will continue producing half uh, half of a 747 monthly. That's interesting. I hope they get the other half done. And three <laughs> 767s monthly. And it, I'll tell you what, it's good. I'm sad that the 747's going, but I'm really really glad they're still pushing the seven sixes out because they are fantastic yeah i mean there's a lot of stuff in the in the story that's sort of quite sad isn't there i mean it's the uh, you understand why they're doing obviously with you know boeing reported i think it was the second quarter like 2.4 billion 
dollar loss um yeah. you know, there's there's also other bits in the story about uh, how they're going to um amalgamate uh, production lines and perhaps only have one triple seven or seven eight seven production line and all that kind of thing all about streamlining and stuff i mean it's uh, I, I i do worry that you know we're not out of the woods as far as all of this you know the, the boeing you know I, I, i've said it before but i'll say it again before we move on i am so glad that i got the chance yeah. to to fly the 747 um, with Virgin and also with Nev last year because yeah. you know uh, it, that that was kind of it really as Nev said earlier you know yeah. that was I mean uh, Nev, we, had a, we had a good chat with the the crew when they shut down yeah. didn't we that was the yeah. other thing that was fantastic so, yeah. Yeah. yeah 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 I can imagine it, it's 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 going to be a sad day obviously but I, I guess it was you know always on the cards but it's 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 always sad when it sort of becomes official I suppose really doesn't it it's uh, mm. There we go. Anyway, we'll move on to the next story now. And uh, story number two, this is actually from Flight Flight uh, Global here. It's Smartwing 737, Captain. I was reading this story earlier. This one worries me a lot as a nervous flyer. Uh, Smartwing 737, Captain. Hid engine failure to continue flight to original destination. Uh, so Czech investigators have revealed that a Boeing 737-800 Captain misled air traffic control over a serious engine failure and ignored the First officers urging a diversion in order to press on to Prague, the flight's original destination. On the 22nd of August last year, about 20 minutes after takeoff the, the, uh, from Samos in Greece, uh, as the aircraft reached 36,000 feet, its left-hand engine began to lose power and flamed out. Rather than making a pan-pan urgency call, the captain merely informed controllers of a technical problem. Uh, attempts to restart the engine were unsuccessful. While the crew reported the shutdown of of the engine to its operations control, the jet passed through Greece, uh, North um, North Macedonia, uh, Serbia, Hungary, Austria, Austria, and the Prague region before the crew admitted uh, transmitted a pan-pan emergency call uh, to air traffic control seeking a shortcut to land. Investigators describe a toxic cockpit atmosphere. The highly experienced captain failed to follow cockpit resource management principles to solve the problem. He did not discuss safety issues of the uh, situation with the first officer who had nearly 2,500 hours on the 737 uh, but instead used to steep uh, used the steep authority gradient to push through his poor decisions. The captain held uh, a flight instructor and examiner qualifications and had a senior position within the airline. The first officer did not contradict the captain's decision to proceed uh, to Prague over concerns that this would worsen the crew operation the crew cooperation sorry necessary to complete uh, the captain defended his thinking uh, to the inquiry testifying that he believed his flight experience had been broad enough to assess all the risks associated with his decisions none of the 170 uh, passengers and six crew members were injured during uh, the event now i mean I, as i say there, there's a lot of information in this story I'll, it'll be in the show notes and i strongly recommend you you read it there was one i'm just trying to find um one bit here that made me very, very nervous uh, as uh, a nervous flyer here. It's basically where it said uh, the 737 landed at Prague. It had 2,435 kilograms of fuel on board, which was literally just 23 kilograms above the reserve fuel figure. Uh, because of the calculations involved with the lower air, f- I mean, there's so many concerning things in this story here, Nev. I mean, what, what, I mean, mm. what's? Your- I, I really thought we we'd moved on from from this get home itis, and <clears throat> I know that the 
the, the commander has to take ultimate responsibility for decisions that, that are made in the cockpit, but they are joint decisions. Yeah, and there's they're supposed to be. Uh, this is a very unanimous uh, and one-sided piece of flying. And, uh, boy, th- this could have gone horribly wrong. He was very, very fortunate indeed. And, uh, as I say, I think if we were going back to 1970, then you could almost understand it. But things mm. have moved on tremendously uh, with uh, CRM in the cockpit and everybody working as part of the team. And, therefore, the decision-making process is part of a team. Obviously, the commander has to take the ultimate uh, decision um, because, at the, at the end of the day, it's his name... Uh, on the on the load sheet and on the aircraft uh, documentation, but uh, this is uh, just awful, isn't it? It really is. No, it really is. I, I'm just, uh, as I say, as a nervous nervous fly, as you say, it's just, hmm, it's just so many things that could have gone right. It's so many what what ifs there, isn't there? And um, Carlos. Yeah, it's a bit. The, so I've read this story in the week. Actually, I was. Um, I was a bit shocked at reading exactly what mm. had gone on, and you just, you just think, you know, when you're in a position of responsibility and you're being paid a fairly yeah. good premium for doing it, you know. Indeed, yeah. Actually, Mash has just said in in the chat room here, look, how did he think he could get away with this? Surely he knew this was going to end up being reported. You know, I mean, that's a good point, isn't it? Really. And that's why CVRs were invented. <laughs> oh hmm? dear. <laughs> uh, apparently, it wasn't actually reported. I'm just being told in my ear. I recorded, right, okay. No. Oh. Oh, well, there we are. Mm. Right, yes. Okay, uh, we're going to move on to the next story. Nev, I Nev. Think you. Yes, on the simpleflying.com website, one of our favourite ones. Uh, the renowned UK design consultancy Priestman Good has come up with many conceptual designs for the post-pandemic aircraft cabin. Uh, their concept, Pure Skies, has reworked both business and economy class, focusing on hygiene and personal space for that all-important passenger confidence. Uh, in the Pure Skies room in business class, each seat is fully enclosed with a floor-to-ceiling curtain separating the passenger from the rest of the cabin. Every passenger gets personal overhead storage and is a pers- and a personal wardrobe. Uh, the IFE is synchronised with the passenger's own device and can be gesture controlled to reduce touch points. In the economy class section, uh, this includes uh, seat to ceiling dividers, uh, every other row and a staggered seating arrangement to provide flexible seating options as needed. Priestman Good suggests that the complete removal of IFE screens in favour of a bring-your-own device policy. And we've uh, talked about this on, on many episodes, haven't we? Uh, the seatback tray is also no more. Instead, a clip-on meal tray will come directly from the trolley. Now, that's a good idea, isn't it? It is, Why isn't it? Of that before? Um, in both classes, the seat itself uh, has minimal split lines and welded fabric seams to minimise the places where dirt and viruses can hide. The fabric and other surfaces in the room are also antimicrobial. So uh, I'll tell you what, that's, uh, that's some intelligent thinking there, isn't it? And I just wonder if this is going to start shaping how uh, the seating is going to be from now on because it's uh, really changing isn't it's it? a really lovely design isn't it it's mm. it's quite classy um it's um yeah i i mean i lo- I, I love it i really do it was uh, i was looking at somebody was saying in the chat room they were agreeing with me which i've misplaced but any oh yeah so air commander was saying that looks absolutely amazing it's um oh yeah it's great isn't it i i i, I really love it it's um 
it's it's good stuff. Sorry, I'm having some tech issues in the studio here, so uh, oh, Carlos, really? you better take over. <laughs> okay, we'll move on. Uh, move on to the next story, uh, which is on the FlightRadar24.com page, and uh, this is about one of my f- one of well my second favourite aircraft after the TriStar, the Boeing seven five seven, and the headline on here is Titan Airways. Uh, 757 visits one of the world's most remote and difficult airports. Some great pictures on this story as well. So aviation fans uh, had a bit of excitement this week as the remote and notoriously tricky airport at St. Helena, uh, HLE, a British overseas territory in the middle of South Atlantic Ocean, welcomed a 757 for the first time. The 757-200, belonging to Titan Airways, was the largest aircraft to land at the airfield, which has cliffs at both ends and is well known for challenging winds. Is Al there? Anyway, not to mention a complete lack of diversion airports for hundreds of miles in every direction. Flight uh, ZT-6892 came t- into St. Helena from Ascension Islands, another remote outpost, and sister island known for its military airfield, Royal Air Force Ascension Island, also known as Wide Awake Airfield and jumping off point for other unique flights to remote territories like the famous Falkland Islands Airbridge and the aircraft itself in question, Gulf Zulu Alpha Papa X-Ray, is on a repatriation mission taking people from the island back to the UK. So it's returning to London via Accra as uh, Zulu Tango 6893. St. Helena, the island itself, doesn't receive many flights and has seen even less in recent months due to COVID-19. Uh, it previously saw regular service from South Africa, so it's perhaps not a surprise that the St. Helena Facebook page has been buzzing this week with news of the arrival. Uh, Titan Airways previously flew an A318 into the airport carrying medical staff and supplies, and there's a great video on this uh, particular story that shows that, which I think Matt may well have played on the story there. But um, it's one of, well, for one thing, it's great to see the 75s still being used um, in quite a lot by Titan. Mm. And um, also, I had a look, there's a few, if you go on the website and you Google this particular airport and you look at the, um, the approach plates and stuff for it, it is a it's one heck of a approach um, into this particular airfield, and I am fully intent on having a go at this tomorrow on X-Plane 11. Oh, I hope you uh, <laughs> video that so we can uh, see it and pass comment. Absolutely. I will record it, yeah. it's Actually, one of, there's a video, if anyone Google, Googles the St. Helena approach on YouTube, there's a few approach videos that have been filmed from the flight deck, which, which are the, 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 the whole view is stunning. Uh, from from the flight deck, but um, yeah. <laughs> Apparently, according to our producer John, the social media at Saint Helena is also incredibly active. Oh, but okay. um, yeah, oh, but, no, it's good. Good to see this. Everybody's very excited. I dare say, as I say, with such an unusual aircraft sort of rocking up there. Well, it's a little bit bigger than the A three eighteen. Let's let's be honest. It's slightly longer. Um, and it looks and it looks a lot better as well. Let's be honest here. The Boeing seven five seven is one of the, I mean, I most be- beautifulest aircraft. I disagree in the world. personally, but then I'm ne- never agrees with me. Never agrees with me. Mm. Oh yes, 
Yes, yes, yes. <laughs> I remember. I remember BA. They had some. They had some. I, I enjoyed the seven five so much going to uh, Glasgow, Edinburgh, Belfast on, on the shuttle routes. I mean, these are seriously overpowered aircraft and uh, <laughs> there's nothing that beats a 757 on a short haul sector maybe not matt's favorite for reasons that we exactly know. yes that i'll never shut up about yeah <laughs> so moving on to uh, to the next story nev uh, this is uh, story number six a very important story and uh, one you know i should imagine you, you know plenty about well i know and it, this uh, actually this whole episode this week uh, one week we've got a good news story the next week we've got a bad news story and this is a bad one i'm afraid this is on the one mile at a time.com website uh, it says that british airways uh, club world london city service was one of the coolest ways to cross the atlantic in business class the airline had a specially configured airbus a318 with just 32 business class seats and the flight operated out of london city rather than out of Heath and on the westbound sector, the flight stopped off in Shannon uh, to refuel. Um, and uh, it also meant that passengers could clear U.S. immigration there, meaning that you arrived in the U.S. as a domestic passenger. Uh, coming back home, the wind was behind you usually, so you could fly nonstop from JFK to London City, uh, except very often when <laughs> the aircraft was late and uh, the C- London City Airport curfew shut the airport, so they ended up at Southend or Gatwick. Well, that's, that's not here nor there. Uh, <laughs> but the flight did operate with the prestigious flight numbers of BA001 and BA002, uh, which in the past were flight numbers used by Concorde. And when they had a second aircraft, uh, that was BA003 and BA004 as well. Now, IAG announced that BA's sole uh, Airbus A318 would be exiting its fleet. This is also the only plane capable of operating the Club World's London City service. So it's also safe to assume that this service will be permanently discontinued. Um, so I was having a bit of a Twitter chat today oh. with uh, a lady called Sally Gethin, who's a very well-respected uh, aviation correspondent. And she was saying, well, can't they just reconfigure the aircraft, you know? Uh, mm. Well, I think that would be terribly expensive to go from 32 business class seats to 120-odd uh, in regular class. Uh, and also that aircraft it has got software specifically equipped to handle the five and a half degree glide slope angle at London City Airport. So there'll be lots of uh, uh, electronics and software to muck about with there as well. But it's a great shame. It's a real pity I never got to flew on it, fly on it either. So it'll mm. be interesting to see whether it's parted out uh, or whether it will be sold on to another airline somewhere. See, the, the actually, thing yeah, that- I've I done a little bit of research actually, Nev, while you're reading that. And uh, I'm just on the a, a good site. It's actually plainspotters.net. And that does actually sound here that um, uh, Golf Echo Uniform November Alpha, 38, Airbus A318, um, is now currently stored. Uh, and Echo Uniform November Bravo um, has uh, apparently, according to this, uh, been, has gone to uh, Titan. Ah, right, okay. And mm. it's um, that uh, John Jester has actually said in the chat room here. Uh, interestingly, is has uh, just sort of said that uh, uh, that there is a possibility it might become a business jet. Of course, uh, with its current configuration. So, it, I mean, who knows? They might sell it rather than you know retire. They might retire it from BA, perhaps. Nev, get your gold card out. <laughs> yeah, I will. I will definitely. Yeah, it's it's um, it's sort of interesting. Sorry, it's. Uh, it's uh, yeah another A three three eighteen for for Titan from from Tony S there. Mm. Uh, it's it's uh, 
there's uh, nothing there I'm afraid I'm being told there's a, a comment there that hasn't come up on my feed for some reason so I don't know what that's all about anyway uh, let's uh, the, you know the thing that I love about that the, the, the most though is is that the whole and I know we covered a story similar to this last week didn't we where um, I think they're, they're talking about doing being able to do the same thing in um, uh, was it was it Brussels or somewhere like that? Where certainly in Europe somewhere where you can do the pre-clearance for yes, uh, right. the US, um, and and that's the thing, isn't it? Like landing at Shannon basically because they wanted to refuel, but also you could do your pre-clearance so that when you got the other end, you were being treated as a, a domestic, um, uh, domestic uh, and uh, yeah, passenger. Even and, all that delay, you know, go, going to Shannon, refueling and clearing customs there, that would still probably save you time. Uh, rather than arriving in the US as an international yeah. flight, so uh, and for the, let's face it, the, these were not cheap tickets. I've got to say, no. and some of them were probably equivalent of the old Concorde tickets. Well, yeah, absolutely. Um, but the people that would be flying it would normally be those rich ladies and gentlemen out of uh, Canary <laughs> Wharf. <and laughs> right. Okay. Yes. Air Commander was actually saying, no. Apparently, uh, this, the, this idea is being this idea is being. Uh, um, it's being retired permanently, so yeah. that, that really is the end end of the road for it, which seems bizarre. Really, it's uh, um, yeah. I wonder if the plane reclaimers will get it. Who knows? <laughs> there we are. It's it's. So the next story, or the last story in the uh, news this week, and uh, is is obviously a good news story. The uh, very first A330 to be retired. This is on simpleflying.com. So uh, for any of you A330 lovers, the very first Airbus A330, this is MSN012, currently registered as Bravo Hotel Lima Juliet, and this is the first one ever to roll off the production line at Airbus, has been put out to pasture. It entered service flying for Airbus in November 1992 and went on to work for Cathay Group for more than two decades. Now it has taken its last flight and will be resting its wings in Taipei. During its years with the Cathay Group, it has flown for the main Cathay Pacific brand and for Dragonair, now Cathay Dragon. Over 24 years of service to the group, uh, Hotel Lima Juliet conducted a staggering 63,000 hours of flying and almost 27,000 cycles. Taking off from Hong Kong, uh, July the 17th, around uh, 18 minutes past 10 local time, it flew for just one hour and 20 minutes to Taipei. There it will be stored, awaiting its final fate. It will more than likely remain stored and potentially have parts salvaged for spares, no doubt the engines, and it's not a glamorous end for this historic machine, but after almost 28 years of flying, a well-deserved rest and very, very well done indeed to that first one. It's actually worth noting as well that this, uh, before it uh, obviously worked for Cathay, was, was a flying test bed and had lots of uh, test equipment on board at the time, which was taken out when it was converted back to passenger use. So oh. there we go. There you go. That's um, that. That is interesting. Now, uh, people people may well have noticed that uh, we we are sort of pushing our way through the news a bit this this week because uh, actually coming up very soon um, after the military, we've got a really exciting. Uh, piece uh, that was done with Armando and John Jester and if you if you are able to stay till the end of the show it's quite a long one which is why we're pushing our way through but it, I promise you please stay for it it's absolutely fantastic uh, that's one of the reasons why we're pushing through the show this week uh, I wonder if uh, we perhaps should just remind everyone because mm. we're not few, far away from the competition uh, results no. being given out soon so perhaps you could run us through that Carlos 
Yeah, don't forget the competition we have got until, or you've got until next week to send us uh, a short piece of feedback, a short story about aviation in your life. Now, this could be anything from a first memory of what uh, kind of brought aviation into your life or a special memory of something to do with aviation that's affected you or brought joy to your life, which I'm sure it has. So if you send us in that feedback, it can be either written or you can do it as an audio or even a video if you like. You can send it into podcast at plaintalkinguk.com or you can send it in to our WhatsApp number, which I can't remember what that is off the top of my head, but we'll give it to you at the end of the show. Plus four four uh, seven five seven two two four nine one six six. There you are. I knew we'd do that. Yeah. Thank you. <laughs> and uh, you could be in with a chance of winning uh, that £150 voucher to spend in the Plane Reclaimers store. Uh, I'll just a quick note on that. Uh, Andrew's added a load more stuff on the website over the last few days uh, from a few quite noteworthy aircraft. Um, and all of these are well within that £150 price bracket. So you can literally buy <laughs> a good portion of uh, cabin interior with the 150 pounds so get your uh, your bits and pieces into us it'd be great to hear your feedback and also gives us a chance to find out about you know what your uh, passion and bits and pieces for aviation and what you've loved so uh, yeah get those sent in and we will be drawing those out of the hat oh. next week <laughs> what that very hat <laughs> I think Gemma's, Gemma's quite excited because I've said to her that she'll be drawing them out of the hat. So she's, right, um, okay. Oh, uh, did you want to just, uh, while you're in the chair there, Carlos, perhaps you just whiz through um, some of the wonderful people who are in our chat room this evening. Yeah, a big hello to everyone who's in the chat room this evening. We've got uh, loads of the family members in there, loads of family We've got uh, Ra Khan who's in there. We've got uh, Tony S. Hello to you, Tony. We've got uh, Air Commander. Hello there. And uh, Myla is also at Lane Street. Stephen H., uh, just scrolling out. James J. Hello to you, James. Uh, Masha. Hello to you, Masha. Uh, John, yeah, Jester. John Jester. Yeah. Lane Street. I'm trying not to miss anyone. I'm scrolling down. Jenny Parkinson. Tony S. Area. Jenny in Rome. Stephen H. And hopefully I haven't missed anyone out. But um, thanks, everyone. Uh, oh, Katie Finch was in there yep. as well. So big thanks to everyone who has joined us in the live YouTube chat room this evening on this rather warm Friday. Uh, well, quite, yes, uh, indeed. Uh, now, we're going to move on to the next part of the show, if we may. Now, Nev, um, you, we we had a sort of passenger experience from you, which was about a month ago now, I think, wasn't it, when you were uh, you, you took a little flight over to Edinburgh for us to see what it was all like. And um, now, now, you've obviously flown out there recently because you, you went to uh, to Newcastle and back, didn't you, via Heathrow? Um, and, and it was a very different experience. Hmm. Yeah, I thought I would just give you a quick update about how things are at the moment. I didn't think I'd bother doing another Nev's passenger experience this week because I thought it'll be the same as three or four weeks ago. But uh, boy, has it changed. Um, well, first thing is uh, Heathrow T5 is a lot busier than it was previously. But also, if, you, if you're familiar with the airport, as you come into the regular security area, um, you know, I said before, I wouldn't mind having the signage contract for the terminal. <laughs> Yeah. I've changed my mind. I would like the perspex and frame uh, contract uh, for that uh, terminal now because there is so much perspex covering and it goes the whole length of the um, the, che- the baggage check-in, uh, sorry, the, the security part of the um, operation. So you've got this tiny little sort of hatch uh, where you have to put, put things through um, and you load your stuff on onto the um uh, uh the um 
what, what would you call it? Sort of the travelator type yeah, thing. Yeah, travelator uh, belt. Yeah. Before I actually go through the X-ray machine. Oh. Right. And of course, things you know get terribly slow. So, uh, as I often say, you don't want to be in a rush because uh, things have slowed down a lot. Of course, the capacity is nowhere near at normal anyway at the moment. So, um, um, but uh, no, so that was quite interesting. But there is perspex and metal uh, extrusion and framework absolutely everywhere now, which there wasn't uh, three weeks ago. Um, the first time, time I had the chance to go into the first class lounge as well, uh, which was quite nice. Uh, they've got a table service operating there. So you scan the QR code that's on your, on your table and you, that comes up with an app and then you choose what you want and they bring, you, bring it to you as a table service, which was, which was really nice, I thought. And um, in the same breath, I'm reading in today's uh, press that uh, BA have lost £711 million pounds in, just in Q2. And as wow. one of my colleagues said to me today, oh, Nev, that, that sounds a bit lumpy. And I think that would be a very good summary of it. Yeah. Uh, so BA are trying their very best to do, to do the best they can. Uh, flew up to Newcastle on 319. Uh, only 25 of us, I think, uh, on the flight up there um, yesterday. And then this afternoon coming back, probably about 60, something like that. And I was uh, having a chat with the, uh, the cabin crew. Some of them had just come back for the first time after not flying since March. So again, the people have been furloughed. Um, so yeah, it was, um, it was really odd, I must say, but, uh, one good bit of news though, uh, I was very impressed with the first officer who, just as we in- intercepted the glide slope, uh, kicked off the, um, autopilot and did a manual approach and landing all the way down from when they dropped the gear to when they, uh, when we hit the deck. Oh, nice. So nice. And it was also very bumpy today because as you may know, it's been quite warm here in the mm. UK. So great for gliding so it was about 36 degrees for the most part so it was a bit uh, lumpy on the way down but you did a cracking job actually so um yeah that was that was really nice actually nev can i ask a quick question yes just off the you know i just wonder what what the the passengers attitudes like kind of thing well i think people need to be a bit more patient i think Mm. there was a little bit of stroppiness going on from from one or two of my fellow passengers uh but i think they've just got to understand that you know we're going to be in this situation for a while now and there's no doubt about it you know wearing a mask in the terminal is not comfortable at all having said that when you get on the aircraft because you've got positive pressure uh in the aircraft uh, when the pressurization system is operating Mm. it's not too bad i have to say so i I think that is a a manageable state of affairs um but of course the, the the ba weren't offering the normal um type of food on board although it was quite acceptable you know no, no problem with that at all and uh, whilst i was in newcastle i bumped into a good friend of ours uh, andy from the a320 podcast oh, yeah. so we had a, a bit of a chat and a coffee and a, and a bun uh, whilst we were up there and <laughs> uh, talking to him about his uh, airline he was saying that uh, again the load factors are terribly small and in fact even when he was operating some of the flights this week where they've got perhaps 90 people booked to go um by the time all the cancellations happen or or you know government advice changes very often he'll only get 50 people on on, the, on that sector wow. so uh, 
uh, yeah, it's um, it's really tough at the moment, and it's a very dynamic situation as, as we've found because uh, obviously today here in the UK there's been rule changes about what you can and can't do, and this is going to be going on yeah. for a while. But it's it's affecting the aviation business massively. So I mean, uh, as as a passenger, Nev, I mean, how how does uh, the, you were saying all of the new perspex screens and and lots of social distancing rules and stuff in there? I mean, how does it make you feel as a passenger walking through this new perspex? dungeon for want of a better word i mean yeah, it's just... of course, we we are um certainly in the west uh, we're all very um you know we rely heavily on eye contact and, and face contact don't we so mm. this new situation is a bit alien to us all i think and well, yeah. we're, get, we're gonna get used to it don't get me wrong but it's just a bit new and a bit different and um i think also when you're talking to the cabin crew where they're talking to you you know it is a bit difficult to communicate you know if they're asking do you want tea or coffee and you, you're always saying pardon i couldn't hear what you're saying um and i noticed actually entirely separately from this although slightly connected our good friend richard westcott that used to be the bbc's aviation mm. correspondent has done a fantastic series uh, out of adambrook's hospital about uh, how the covid cases are being dealt with there and you should see some of the ppe that those guys and girls have to wear yeah, operating theatre it looks absolutely stifling so you know we shouldn't really complain uh, about it no. but uh, yeah it's it was it's a very different experience and i'm sure as um when carlos and i go to malta at the end of uh, september uh, we'll find that it's different again um you know mm. so, yeah well, if, if we go uh, yes uh, ba already changed actually from, from, actually uh, just quickly nev i don't know whether you saw the news today nev on social media but uh, um, they've actually now uh, announced their first participant of the Mulder Ooh. Show. Yeah. Oh, I did do that, yes. Yeah. So that's a good sign, isn't it? It is a good <laughs> yes, sign. It's, and it's, also, it's quite the, helpful. the good sign is as well that they're, they're the Italian GDIF who are going to be there with um, a ATR-72 and an AW-139, I think, helicopter. Yes. Uh, yeah, no, 169, sorry. Um, but yeah, they've they've announced it. But they've also said, Nev, that there there is uh, going to be static stuff. Is there? Mm. Mm. Oh, good. So oh, interesting. interview opportunities. Yes, fingers crossed. All being well, so that would be nice, wouldn't it? So uh, yeah, so we're looking forward to going uh, very much. And that's the what is the dates? It's the twenty sixth and twenty seventh of September, which is the that's it, yeah. Today and Sunday, not long to go, but uh, I still hope that we're all going to be there. Yeah, yeah absolutely. <laughs> Yes. Okay. Uh, time to move on then. Thanks for that, Nev. That's really, um, that's, that's to say, it, it's sort of both worrying slash interesting all at the same time, really. Uh, time, the, uh, time to move on to the next bit. Uh, as many of you uh, will know, I've been chatting uh, each week uh, to the legend that is Captain Al uh, in our new segment that we're calling The Plain Truths. And this week we are talking about bomb threats. That's a cheery thought for everyone, isn't it? Bomb threats. <laughs> Hello and welcome to another Plain Truce and this week we're going to be talking about that really horrible word that is bomb threats. Uh, joining me today as always is the legend that is Captain Al. Hi, Cap Hi Captain Al. 
Uh, hi, Matt. Yep, um, we're going to talk about something that really, really doesn't happen very often. No, no, indeed. Now, obviously, this is coming to people, the forefront of people's mind, obviously, because uh, sort of post-lockdown, uh, there has been an incident involving, let's just say, a low-cost airline uh, where a credible bomb threat was uh, made. Uh, and obviously, that, as a nervous flyer, obviously, that's got me thinking. So, uh, in the event of receiving a bomb threat while you're in the air, what happens, basically? Okay, so let's take a, a step back, if you will. Yep. Uh, bomb threats are, I'm going to choose my words carefully, are events that happen from time to time. And the majority of bomb threats are hoaxes. It's as simple as that. You know, the classic one is a passenger is running late for their flight, so stupidly they'll phone up, uh, say there's a bomb at the airport or a bomb on the aeroplane, thinking that that will be sufficient to delay everything and they'll make their flight. And yes, there are people who are sufficiently stupid who will do that. I mean, that's what means for a start. <laughs> <laughs> well, yeah. So, uh, so the majority of bomb threats are hoaxes. Now, the question that you asked me was very specific, and that was, what happens if you receive a threat in the air? So... The first thing to say is that a lot of what happens we can't really talk about because, as you could imagine, there are some security implications. Right. So I will be sufficiently vague in certain areas but endeavour to answer the question. So if the flight crew receive a bomb threat in the air, it has already been screened to eliminate the known hoax scenario. Right. So we have specific coded messages that we will receive, which I won't elaborate on, that basically mean that the airline or the state of registration have already determined that they feel that the threat is real enough to advise the crew. Does that make sense? Yes. Yeah. Okay. So in other words, all of the hoaxes are filtered out if the aircraft is in flight because there's no point in phoning up a crew and saying, we've had a bomb threat, but we don't think it's real. Because no. what are you going to do? You're going to go, you're going to think You're going to worry a load of people you. unnecessarily, aren't you, Absolutely. essentially? Yeah. Okay. okay. So when we get a credible bomb threat, there are a list of procedures that unfortunately I can't elaborate on that we would then go through. Now, a lot of this depends on where you are in the world because... Countries that you are flying over have a vested interest in a safe outcome for this event. Because quite clearly, if you're at 36,000 feet over London, or even Bungie for that matter, <laughs> the good people living in London, or Bungie, don't really want bits of your aeroplanes scattering down from the sky over them. No. So, uh, in the UK, uh, this is public knowledge, a aircraft that experiences a bomb threat or indeed significant unrest on board the aircraft will be intercepted by the UK military, in this case the Air Force typically, and will be escorted to one of a couple of airports in the UK. So in the southern part of the UK, uh, that would be London Stansted, and in the northern part of the UK, that would be Prestwick. And there are predetermined 
courses of action that will take place once the aircraft has landed. And the reason that those two airports are specific is because the predetermined action is already kind of set up and ready to go, if you see what I mean. Yeah. Um, now, obviously, in the past, when bomb threats have taken place, one of the areas to, uh, I suppose, identify or investigate is whether the perpetrators of the bomb threat are actually on board or whether it's just a sort of remote bomb, if you like. Uh, since September the 11th, the dynamics of bomb threats, hijacks and disturbances on board quite clearly changed. Um, the motives of uh, terrorists changed and uh, therefore we tend not to investigate those areas so much. Within the cabin, if there is a bomb threat, the cabin crew will attempt to locate the bomb, if indeed there is one on board. And there are then ways and means of dealing with said bomb to try to minimize any detrimental effect that said bomb would have on the aircraft. So you might say, well, what on earth does that mean? Well, there are designated areas on an aircraft where you could put a bomb where it will cause the least amount of damage. And that's basically where the bomb would be put. I have to say, because uh, we do have some friends associated with the program in the cabin crew uh, environment, and I would say good luck to any cabin crew member who has to pick up a bomb and move it. <laughs> I can imagine. But that, is, that is what they would be asked to do. Uh, once the aircraft has landed, assuming that it was just a bomb on board and that there weren't any hijackers or terrorists on board, uh, it doesn't uh, surprise anybody that we would evacuate the aeroplane pretty quickly and then leave the authorities to deal with the aircraft <laughs> and said bomb. <laughs> wow. I, now, I, <laughs> I have to say that bombs on aeroplanes quite clearly do happen, um, but they are exceptionally rare. Mm. And there have been many, many cases where bombs have gone off on aeroplanes and most people have survived. Um, I think of one particular event a few years ago where the, uh, the terrorist was actually accompanying the bomb. The bomb went off, uh, put a fairly sizable hole in the side of the aeroplane, sufficiently to suck out the terrorist, but everybody else stayed on board. So you can make of that what you will. A, a, a satisfactory outcome, I think, is probably the best way to... Re In the eyes to, of many, yeah, I'd say. Yeah, absolutely. Slightly controversial, I know. Uh, and, I, mean, it's, I mean, it sounds like something that, that would... We, you know, it's it's a very nerve-wrapping subject, I suppose. This is, but then I suppose again, if we try and rationalise this a bit, there is uh, every possibility. If you, I mean, you you could be at, uh, go for a day at the races, for example, and be in just as much danger and or threat um, to something like this than than an in-air event. Absolutely. Um, I mean, you're a much younger chap than my myself, but anybody who's grown up in the United Kingdom will be aware of bombs. Uh, I grew up through what is uh, euphemistically called uh, the Troubles, uh, yeah. but we had uh, many, many uh, provisional IRA bomb attacks on the mainland here in the UK. I live not very far from Warrington, uh, which was badly destroyed uh, by a bomb. 
uh, as was Manchester, as was various parts of London, Brighton, we could continue to mm. list places. So, uh, yes, you're absolutely right. Uh, bombs are an unfortunate evil that uh, cannot be avoided, uh, but we go to great lengths in aviation to prevent them getting on board aeroplanes. It's a very interesting subject. Thank you, Captain Al. You're welcome. I mean, oh, what a jovial subject to oh. pick, Matt. Oh, I, was, I was sitting here just thinking, oh, I can't wait to get on a commercial airliner now. I know, but that, you say that, but from my my point of view, as a nervous <laughs> as a nervous passenger, actually, I I, I didn't realise there was like a special place where it where a, a device would be put, for example, if if located and or found and stuff. So I mean, you know, I I, I found it a really interesting subject, and that was that was the reason why we had that chat. So uh, I mean, it, yes. when the aircraft's on the ground, it's a great way of uh, getting everyone off quick, I suppose. Right. I mean, that's yeah. I, th- I think you're missing the point here slightly. <laughs> <laughs> But there we are. Never mind. Uh, Thank you, Captain Al, as always. There will be more from Captain Al and the Plain Truce next week. It's good feedback, actually, we're getting from that. So well done to you and uh, and Captain Al for doing that. Worth mentioning, it's now also available as an audio podcast. So if you search for The Plain Truce, I know. Right, I better get... uh, Message my father now. Immediately, absolutely. Uh, the the plain truth. Uh, one episode is available on there at the moment. The rest will be available hopefully later on today. So uh, yes, it's uh, it's going to be good. It's going to be good. Hopefully, all being well. There we go. Right, on to K. Uh, we're going to move on to the military now. Armando isn't here this week, uh, but he very he is virtually he is here virtually. <laughs> and uh, now I should just say because obviously I, um, Armando will start uh, when we move on. Uh, but unfortunately, uh, we originally planned to, as some of you know, to have Captain Nick with us today. Uh, unfortunately, he got caught in traffic and hasn't st- still hasn't made it home yet. Bless him. So uh, it's uh, yeah, we're going to uh, don't be alarmed when he when he throws to Captain. Nick and he's not there but uh, anyway if everybody's ready it's time to do the military here we go guys I'm glad we have Nick on the show this week to comment on this story from ABC News, an American F-15 fighter jet came within 1,000 meters of an Iranian civil airliner flying over southern Syria last week in order to carry out a visual identification of that aircraft, according to the U.S. military. The visual identification was completed safely, but not before the Mahan Air pilots carried out a rapid descent into Beirut that resulted in several passenger injuries. A statement from U.S. Central Command said, that the F-15 was on a routine air mission in the vicinity of Combined Joint Task Force Operation Inherent Resolve at Tanf Garrison in Syria, conducting a visual inspection of a Mahan Air passenger airliner at a safe distance of approximately 1,000 meters from the airliner this evening. The visual inspection occurred to ensure the safety of coalition personnel at, at Tanf Garrison, Uh, said the spokesperson, describing a remote U.S. military base in southern Syria along the border with Jordan that is home to a small number of American troops. Once the F-15 pilot identified the aircraft as a passenger plane, the F-15 safely opened distance from the aircraft, adding that the professional intercept was conducted in accordance with international standards. 
but the F-15's close proximity to the airliner, about a kilometer, seems to have led the civilian pilots to carry out a rapid and unexpected descent, injuring various people on board. A 55-mile area around U.S. troops at the At-Tamf garrison is considered a deconfliction zone where Russian and Syrian government ground forces are not allowed to operate. The same applies to Russian and Syrian aircraft and any aircraft flying through that airspace, which must identify themselves via radio. The U.S. official told ABC News that the F-15 approached the airliner to visually inspect it after it did not respond to their radio communications. Reports of the injuries aboard the airliner first appeared in Iranian state, me uh, state media and originally cited by an intercept uh, originally cited an intercept by Israeli fighters. They later said that American fighter jets had harassed the civilian pilots, forcing them to carry out abrupt flight maneuvers. Public flight data for Air Mahan Flight 1152 and viewed by ABC News showed that the airliner dropped about 14,000 feet in four minutes. Video taken aboard the airliner shared on social media showed that uh, what appeared to be a fighter jet flying at a distance, then pulling away from the aircraft. In one video, a passenger described how his head, his forehead, was bloodied as the airliner executed its rapid descent. In another clip, another man is, was seen lying flat on the airliner's uh, back galley as his fellow passengers attended to him. Now, Steve Ganyard, uh, an ABC News aviation cor uh, correspondent, said the injuries appeared to be the result of an overreaction by Iranian pilots. Based on the distance that the American jet was from the aircraft, the question becomes, did the Iranian pilots, what did they do with their flight controls when they saw the fighter jet? A professional ICAO standard visual identification of an unres unresponsive airliner flying through a combat zone by a fighter aircraft, after which the Mahan flight inex inexplicably executes a dangerously aggressive descent that apparently injured several passengers. Uh, Iranian media reported that after the landing in Beirut, the airliner did return to Tehran. Uh, the team over at APG were discussing this on the last show, and Nick offered an alternative theory that the pilots might have reacted to a TCAS alert. Nick? Yes, unfortunately, Nick isn't here on this one. So that, that would have worked really well, wouldn't it? Uh, that, that, but uh, there we are. I'll tell you mm. what, from my, my, my point of view, one of the things that I find quite... Um, uh, I don't know. I, I'm just thinking from a passenger's point of view because I mean, there, if you read the story, obviously there's there's quite a uh, sort of like you know it drops quite dramatically, doesn't it? As it's sort of essentially taking evasive action because the, mm. the pilot decided to, that they were under attack. I mean, it's a, a very uh, you know from a passenger's point of view, it would have been a very worrying um, you know manoeuvre slash thing to see out of your your windows. I mean, what what what, what does anybody not... think? I was going to say, let's not forget that this has happened a few times in the past and it's not ended very well when, um, you know, military jets have mistaken or, or, or come across a commercial airliner. Mm. Um, I can't remember the certain stories, but there are, there's a few stories out there. I think one of them was an Air India flight quite a few years ago. I think, Nev, you probably remember, remember that one that was, um, mm. I think it was shot uh, somewhere over the RSC, I think. So, yes, that's yeah. right. Yes, yeah. Mm. Yeah. Um, but uh, no, uh, John Jester in the chat room saying that uh, TCAS, TCAS uh, resolution advisory wouldn't cause you to float people uh, into the overheads. Uh, so uh, no, it's a very good point. And I think that, um, yeah, there's, there's, there's something about this story that doesn't quite add up, isn't there? There's, 
information that's that's gone on that uh, we uh, none of us are aware of. Uh, so uh, yeah, very interesting. <laughs> Uh, there, there is that. Uh, also, he's saying that apparently uh, Chris Griggs is saying apparently it's cheap, you know, cheaper than a, a zero G uh, parabolic flight. Uh, yeah, <laughs> that's all, that's always a fact. Yeah. Do, as I say, do the pilots think they can outmaneuver an F fifteen? Is is what our producer is saying in in the air. It's just, uh, also, uh, Richard Adams is saying it's not as if an airliner being ge- is uh, an airliner being genuinely threatened by a military jet could do anything about it, which is probably a good point if they had made well, their it, mind it, up. It, it, it could dump dump fuel if the, uh, right. if the jet the fighter jet was behind the aircraft. You'd dump a whole load of uh, aviation fuel at the aircraft. I suppose. Right. That's, I, I mean, that's that's one way of looking at it. I suppose. Yeah. If it has the cap- if it has the capability to dump, not all aircraft have the capability yeah. to dump fuel. So. No, it, uh, Lane has Lane has suggested that you know vomit comet to you know get get your um. Get your tickets here. Uh, but uh, there we are. Never so, mind. So moving on to the second story then in the military segment this week, brought to us again by Armando. A few weeks ago, we talked about the Air Force establishing contracts for aggressor training. In an update to the story from The Drive, Air Combat Command has awarded those contracts for the first five U.S. Air Force bases to receive the contractor. Uh, contract aggressor support under its huge Red Air Adversary Support Program. The Airborne Tactical Advantage Company, or ATAC, has announced that it has secured the support contracts for Holloman Air Force Base, New Mexico, and Luke Air Force Base in Arizona. Contracts for a further three locations have also been awarded, the details of which are unclear at the moment. But further news is expected shortly from the Air Force. The sixth location from the initial tranche of planned awards Uh, the identity of which is not presently known, is on hold pending an environmental impact study. Air Combat Command posted its solicitation for the first six bases for adversary air support this past winter. The bids were due by March 31st for the locations at Kingsley Field, Oregon, Luke Air Force Base, Arizona, Holloman Air Force Base, Eglin Air Force Base, Seymour Johnson Air Force Base, and Kelly Field in Texas. Now, ATAC says that its two awards are worth a combined $240 million and that it will see the company providing air-to-air adversary training missions for trainee pilots going through the formal training units, or FTUs, at these bases. The combined awards provide for up to 3,000 sorties per year for up to four and a half years, with ATAC using its new Dassault Mirage F-1 fighters for that kind of work. ATAC is now part of Textron Textron Airborne Solutions, and in anticipation of the Air Force requirement, it procured 61 former French Air Force Mirage F-1 and F-1B jets, which began arriving at the new Adversary Center of Excellence in June of 2017. The aircraft are being returned to an airworthy status at this Fort Worth Alliance Airport facility. ATAC's first refurbished Mirage F-1 flew at Alliance Airport on August 22nd of last year. The first flight was a two-seat F-1B, which made an initial acceptance flight. It's, uh, I, it's, I, <laughs> it's a lot of money, $240 million. I mean, if, if someone handed me a contract, I'd be, oh, thanks. <laughs> Yay. Absolutely. Have you, have you ever received a contract of that size, Nev? <laughs> 
Um, no, <laughs> oddly enough, no. <laughs> right, okay, it's the only reason you're here. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> there we go. Uh, right, well, we'll move on to the last story then uh, here. We're talking European collaboration with this one. Take it away, Armando. From the United Press International, the British, Swedish and Italian defense industries are in discussion to collaborate on an air combat capability, according to defense contractor BAE Systems. BAE said that the framework was promoted as a means to employ tens of thousands of skilled workers in those countries, leading defense industry companies. The announcement mentioned Britain's BAE, Leonardo UK, Rolls-Royce, MBDA UK, Italy's Leonardo, Electronica, Avio Aero, and MBDA Italia, along with Sweden's Saab Aerospace and GKN Aerospace. The companies would also work in part with Britain's future combat air system project, a $24 billion plan by Britain to build the next generation fighter plane, now known as the Tempest, by 2035. While the Tempest would replace France's Rafale and Britain's Typhoon aircraft, it is expected to be an an advancement over the F-35 from the United States, which is already flown by several countries in Europe. European defense industry leaders were enthusiastic last week about this prospective collaboration. Chief Executive Officer at Leonardo, Alessandro Profumo, said, All three national industries fully grasp the historic nature of this moment. Tempest will be the cornerstone of the across-border system of common defense, which will extend far beyond combat air. It will secure economic benefits and vast industrial and technological progress for Italy and our partners. Together we share an understanding that if we get this right now, our respective aerospace and defense industries will thrive for a generation. Now this announcement came after the British uh, Defense Ministry said last week that seven more companies had signed agreements to work on what it now calls Team Tempest. Bombardier Belfast, Collins Aerospace, GE Aviation UK, GKN Aerospace, Martin Baker, Kinetic and Thales UK have joined BAE Leonardo, MBDA, Rolls-Royce and the Ministry of Defense on the Tempest project, according to British officials. Now additional companies are expected to join the consortium soon. This project, which began in 2018, currently employs 1,800 people in Britain. Defense Minister Ben Wallace commented that just two years after Team Tempest was created, they delivered a world's first. It's no surprise that when you attract the very best of British engineering and design, technological leaps like these are guaranteed. He continued to say, I'm delighted seven more companies have joined this mission to work in collaboration with the Ministry of Defense under the Team Tempest banner. They will bring the ambition, invention, and expertise that will deliver breakthroughs when we will, that we will depend on for decades to come. Now this that's a, this is a really interesting subject. I mean, I love anything that involves collaboration. Obviously, that's uh, that's clearly the way forward, isn't it? With with these things, it's nice to sort of be working with uh, with other uh, air, you know, air, air, you know, other resources, I suppose, other forces across uh, Europe. Um, I don't know if you've noticed, but military is expensive, uh, whichever way you look at it. it. <laughs> it's very rare, certainly in the European region, that uh, you know one country has got the resource to do absolutely everything so so they need the collaboration of as uh, many like-minded uh, companies as they can i'd imagine yeah. it's probably why when they brought the f-35s to react a few years back when they first brought them there and they didn't let anyone near them no one no one at all put the fences <laughs> up and everything oh, they? Oh. yeah oh, well, just in case know. anyone just in case anyone stole one you know 
Anyway. Right. Okay. I'll bear that in mind. Thanks. Is that is that likely anytime soon? I mean, <laughs> I doubt it. I doubt it. I mean, it's a, it's a, it's, a, it's you know, it's a very ballsy move, isn't it, to go go up to a load of military personnel and say, I'm just going to hotwire that and take that home. Actually, uh, before we before we before we finish, uh, finish the military segment, I will just say for anyone living, obviously, me and Matt live in East Anglia, as yeah. most of you know, a lot watch the show. This week has been so incredibly busy mm. uh, in and around the area we live in. We've had the Ospreys coming over. Mm. We've had Chinooks. Well, hence we've had, my picture behind me, look. You know, exactly. Yeah, we've, yeah. Had, uh, we've also had the F-35s over, and uh, we also had the F-8, I think there's the F-18s come over as well earlier on this week. It's mm. been, it has been a really, really, really busy week here in East Anglia for military uh, aviation. So Indeed. It's, it's been nice to see. Nice yeah. to see. Absolutely. Uh, now we're going to move on to a very special segment, mm. uh, Carlos, which I'll leave you to introduce. I'm really excited about sharing this with everyone. Yeah, this is incredibly interesting, guys and girls. I hope you enjoy this. For those of you who may have heard and remember that the uh, NTSB released the findings and the reports on the Atlas Air Flight. So this is uh, Armando, who uh, sat down uh, this week with John Jester uh, to chat with him about the NTSB findings and the processes behind the investigation of the Atlas Air 3591 crash. In case you've forgotten about the incident, Armando has a quick rundown of the event and the investigation findings. The National Transportation Safety Board has found that Atlas Air Flight 3591 crashed outside Houston in 2019 after the first officer, due partly to a sensory illusion, improperly reacted to inadvertent activation of the aircraft's go-around mode. The NTSB, in conclusions released on July 14th, also cites first officer airmanship deficiencies and shortcomings by the captain as factors in playing a role in the crash. They stated in the report, also contributing were systemic deficiencies in the aviation industry's selection and performance measurement practices, which failed to address the first officer's aptitude-related deficiencies and maladaptive stress response. The NTSB disclosed its findings in a webcast hearing on July 14th. The investigation is complete, but the final accident report has not been released. The Federal Aviation Administration said that it intends to address some of the NTSB's concerns next year by requiring sharing of pilot records. The Atlas Air Boeing 767-300, a converted freighter, registration 1217-Alpha, crashed as it approached Houston's George Bush Intercontinental Airport on February 23, 2019, during a flight from Miami. Three people died in the crash, the captain, the first officer, and a pilot traveling as a uh, jump seater. The accident sequence began when the aircraft was about 35 nautical miles outside of Houston, descending in light turbulence through 6,300 feet with the first officer at the controls. The turbulence likely caused the first officer's wrist or watch to inadvertently activate the jet's go-around switch, which triggered a sequence of events which we'll t discuss here in just a minute. Now, the NTSB said the first officer deliberately withheld from Atlas a history of performance issues. They also concluded that the first officer's repeated use of incomplete and inaccurate information about his employment history on resumes and applications were deliberate attempts to conceal his history of performance deficiencies and deprive Atlas Air and at least one other former employer of the opportunity to fully evaluate his aptitude and competency as a pilot. 
In its response, Atlas Air said the NTSB's report provides valuable findings that will help our company and the aviation community as a whole as we continue to improve safety across our industry. Of critical importance is the need for an improved federal pilot's record database to provide airlines with full visibility of pilot history in the hiring process. Now, to prevent such accidents in the future, the NTSB urged the FAA to emphasize that aircraft operators should use flight operations experts, not designated agents, to review pilot records prior to hiring. The board recommends that the FAA addresses shortcomings with an existing but voluntary pilot records database, which is used to share pilot records among airlines. The database should include all pilot training records related to airline employment processes. The NTSB also reiterated that uh, previous recommendation that airlines prior to hiring new pilots be required to obtain and review notices of disapprovals. Such forms are records of areas where pilot applicants demonstrate unsatisfactory piloting knowledge or skill. The FAA said that it expects uh, in January 2021 to publish a rule requiring the industry to provide pilot records to the pilot records database. The FAA will complete the final database after the agency publishes the final rule. So I'm joined now by one of my longest friends and a 747 pilot for Acme Giant, John. John is a flight instructor. He was a captain at a regional airline before moving to the 747. And he was a, a pilot union representative to the NTSB and was heavily involved in the investigation shortly after the mishap occurred. Uh, when we pick up the conversation, we were talking about some of the NTSB conclusions. They talk about aviation industry selection and uh, performance measurement issues. How did how did you get there? Yeah, so through the course of an investigation, you're going to look at the backgrounds of all the pilots. Uh, and we did this with uh, this particular case. Uh, the background of the uh, captain was not of a particular note, it was pretty standard, um, an individual failure of one event and uh, some monitoring, but no other significant issues. When we did begin to look into the background of the first officer, though, that was where we started seeing some issues. He had a number of previous employers he had worked at in the regionals. Uh, we believe some 135 operations as well that uh, he didn't successfully complete training. Uh, he was uh, flying from Mesa Airlines prior to uh, this accident and uh, came to us after failing to upgrade the captain and being sent back to the uh, bright seat with comments that in the debriefing notes that, that were done through interviews where it indicated that he was even challenged to get back into the right seat. Uh, he had a tendency to get flustered in training events where he didn't feel confident and would push buttons. That's what they pretty much everybody has said through different events. And we had uh, a previous event where he froze uh, and pitched the note plane over and basically froze in, in a simulator event. So these background things, what happens is we have a program in, in the United States called PREA, so that's Pilot Records Improvement Act, and that happened after Colgan mm -hmm. back in the uh, earlier 2000s. It was also uh, a congressional law that came out that required the uh, FAA to develop PREA 
and to develop a pilot record database. And that happened. And what happens is the pilot record database part never has come to fruition yet. Conveniently, the FAA has recently just put out a notice of proposed rulemaking to actually create that. And that would address some of these record keepings where you can, as hiring a uh, company, look at somebody's background and say, okay, what's the progression of this individual? I think it's one of the key things we want to stress in aviation is failure in training should be an option. That means that there is a standard is being held. We're, we're seeing the standard being applied and people need to, to achieve that standard. I think that in this case, we saw the failure, every, pretty much every failure you could possibly have with a system in a perfect, you know, or imperfect situation that this individual was allowed to leave these places with a resignation letter and really nothing that would flag to say, okay, he's had personal problems. Well, what were the personal problems? Well, the personal problems were more likely that he wasn't successful in his training, but it could be also played off that there was personal health problems at home. And this kind of allowed, and there was, this has been an industry thing for a long time where people are allowed to resign instead of being fired from training. And that can be a problem. And I think that this, uh, case highlights that again much more strongly and it got a little bit further with the way things were recorded in the training records uh when you read through some of the training records of different companies everybody uses their own computer system their own codes and if you're an hr person you're gonna have a hard time translating some of these codes now maybe if you're a pilot experienced pilot and in the training departments you might be able to, to decide what each of these codes are. Some of them might be in some plain language, some of it not. I think that there's definitely an idea here from uh, our perspective, from the guys that did the investigation on the, the pilot side of things, that there needs to be some industry standardization on how things are done and recorded, thinking that uh, there'd be a great deal of benefits so somebody can look at somebody's background and see if they are successful or not. Do they need extra training? Do they need extra monitoring? So maybe you really take a chance on them, but you want to monitor them a little bit more. Uh, in this case, we had a person who was on paper, okay, time-wise, uh, had experience flying jets, complicated jets. He flew, previously flew an Embraer 175, which is a very modern, very capable aircraft. And now we throw them into a 767. And... 767 is kind of an interesting aircraft. We think of it as a very modern airplane, and it is not. It is a very old airplane nowadays. Uh, this is 1970s, uh, early 80s designs. Uh, the aircraft that we fly are converted passenger planes in most cases, and they are a hodgepodge of different setups. Um, you know, I think we have four or five different radios on versions on each of these you know each aircraft a little bit different the screens there's some screens there's round dials there's it's a big mix and you throw somebody into that and it's an extra bit of challenge plus stepping up into a bigger airplane a heavy airplane there's a lot to learn there and monitoring the uh, training uh, and making sure somebody's really capable of thinking ahead of the aircraft is very important uh, the step up from a 172 to a Pilatus was probably pretty big for you. The step up from a Embraer 175 to a 767 is a pretty big step. Um, flight management systems, just the speed and the uh, 
energy that you have as an aircraft is is a very different situation. When I jumped into my current ride, 747, I came from an RJ. Speeds are actually relatively compatible, surprisingly. But the weight is not. And that amount of energy and how the airplane handles is significantly different. It, it took me a while to feel comfortable with it. And I had to have good training to, to make sure I could stay up on the systems. So I think what we saw here was somebody that was trained to proficiency standards, at least as far as we could tell, uh, but was having problems and probably needed to be monitored. And in this case, the company had chosen not to through their system. Now, concurrent with all this was the huge hiring boom. And there was a greater need for more and more pilots. Our company was expanding uh, with the addition of new aircraft uh, for actually particularly for this contract that this crash occurred on. And uh, we were already kind of short with a lot of pilots leaving to go to better, better paying locations. So we had this huge need to bring in pilots again trained and that was putting in greater stress on everything. And I think that they, they looked to go get a little bit of flexibility in the program, but they chose maybe, in, you know, personal opinion, maybe not the best path. Um, it's hard to not money on any quarterback an accident when you're investigating the accident, but you do. So the event occurred not because of necessarily the direct training, but more that this person was predisposed to this and wasn't really caught in the training. There wasn't enough monitoring. There wasn't enough uh, review of the person's progress to see, okay, well, he's constantly hanging up. And in this case, you know, the accident itself is, a, is the, the golden BB event where everything bad aligned up simultaneously uh, with this aircraft. Uh, they talk about the go-around switches being uh, triggered, and that was an inadvertent activation and how that started started much much earlier up and there was a high workload environment coming in just like we always do mm-hmm. uh coming into an, uh, a larger airport you're on an arrival you get have to get the weather you're programming up an fms to say what runways you're going to land on in this case we also had a instrumentation failure reported on the uh, CVR from the FO, the screen's blanked out, which is what we assume. And there's a switch they use to fix that. So there's a proper swap of controls to the captain flying. The first officer takes over the non-flying duties, uses the button, states on the audio that he fixed it, uh, or that's fixed. And uh, there was a runway change and a request for descent and vectors for weather. All this is occurring in this short time period and a swap back in controls plus an expedite for descent. So they're trying to fly them in head to head with the aircraft coming out of the Houston area, but they needed them to go underneath the, the traffic coming out. So they were expediting descent. And in a large aircraft, the way we do that is we're normally flying at idle on our mm-hmm. descents and we have to use speed brakes or landing gear or something. So normally speed brakes. So he had reached out, put the speed brakes out. And we think what happened is that he's got his hands in the right seat across behind the throttles and his hands riding on top of the speed brake handle. 
and then he has a uh, jostle from the turbulence from the weather that they were going to go through or were going through that time. And we think what happened was that uh, maybe his watch, his wrist, something triggered the uh, go-around switch, which is on the sort of the back upper portion of the throttles. And then that puts the power up. Unfortunately, nobody noticed this. There's modes that were being selected that select uh, on the screens that say go around GA, GA on top. Uh, that was highlighted by the NTSB. And obviously the power levers are going to move forward. Unfortunately, none of that was caught by him. And we think there just was a high workload environment, maybe looking out the screen, out the window and not down at their instruments. We think also the captain was most likely probably setting up his either his iPad for the new approach or double checking the FMS, so kind of heads down, um, but not not watching the screens. And uh, that first officer didn't catch it. And this airplane was light. That was another big thing. Um, they had selected flaps one, which is what allowed them to arm it, uh, but uh, they hadn't really slowed down that much. The aircraft never actually. Stopped descending. It just shallowed its ascent, started leveling off, and then this huge power increase happens. The nose is pitching up, and the acceleration is extreme uh, because the airplane is very light, and now you have 106,000 pounds of thrust on an airplane. It's, I'm not sure the exact weight was, but you know, 200 and say 60, 270,000 pounds, and then now it's off to the races, mm-hmm. and so. We run into somatographic illusion, which is what they they talk about in the report. Somatographic illusion, for those who uh, don't know that lovely term, is an acceleration illusion of the inner ear. And if you suddenly get this acceleration, uh, a forward acceleration, it will give your inner ear the sense that you're pitching up. And the perceived pitch angle that the NTSB calculated was somewhere approaching 80 degrees. So his uh, essentially, you know, inner ear gyro tumbled and mm-hmm. uh, he pitched over. They could saying that they were stalling. There's no other indications of the stall. There's no airspeed issues. When you look at the angle of attack values, there's none of that. There were, we have something we call pitch limit indicators. So that when flaps come out, so as you get closer to the pitch where you might stall, these little bars come down. None of those were there. Uh, and he pitches it over, and now, you know, we had almost a 30,000 foot per minute descent rate at one point. Now, the poor captain, uh, you know, as a, as a non-flying pilot, he's supposed to be monitoring stuff. So if you're, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to look away from you for a second. If you're doing this, say, so look at your iPad, and all of a sudden, now you got to do this. Mm-hmm. Now your head's super tumbled. You've got a first officer who said you're stalling. You're looking at your instruments and you're seeing a lot of nose down, brown on the screen, airspeed's increasing, and now he starts to, to try to fight this but doesn't verbalize what he's doing. And, you know, honestly, there's a huge surprise factor, startle event from this. And we're not like the military. We don't train in these environments where you're – regularly upset uh, i think most yeah. fighter pilots would say if they go through training they're going to go through and they're going to be intentionally put in situations where the aircraft will depart controlled flight so that they're not caught off guard by that experience and it's getting thrown around the cockpit is 
I won't say secondhand, but not an unusual experience for them. They've, they've been there, but this is not something that's done in the civilian world. We don't train in these acrobatic ways. I, I'm sure at your acrobatic training was a eye-opening experience the first time. I don't know if you, did you ever end up departing controlled flight? Yeah. Your eyes probably yeah, do one and, of those. And, you know, in the course of professional pilot training, you do upset recovery training, but that's, you know, an hour flight time or something like that. So, I mean, yeah, it exposes you to some of these um, effects and you briefly discuss the inner ear fluid and, and things like that. But doing a full acrobatic course was very, very different than an hour conversation about upset recovery. So, Yeah, and, and when this uh, incident occurred, the upset recovery training had not been uh, implemented yet. Mm -hmm. uh, it was on the books just getting its final uh, I's dotted and T's crossed and uh, getting ready to go out there. And there was lots of changes to the software of the simulators to allow them to do that. Uh, and then there's the other thing is when you actually do the upset recovery training, which I thought was excellent. It was a, a hoot to be put at a 110 degree nose low attitude at 10,000 feet in a 747. But there's no G factor. Yeah. None. And you can't put a lot, you can't simulate that G factor or these illusions with the current day technology. I, I believe that there is some technology coming down the road and there are specific simulators out there that some militaries do use to train for this, but uh, type of illusion, but uh, it's, it's an experience. And I, you know, we look at the traces on the FDR data, flight data recorder data, the G loading experience was, a long period of negative G's. And for those who don't know about it, I mean, once you start going to less than zero G, your blood starts to go the mm -hmm. other direction. It starts to go up here. It's not a comfortable position. It would be kind of equivalent to hanging upside down on a pole, uh, you know, like a kid swing around on, and then trying to fly an airplane uh, while you're kind of floating in your seatbelts, maybe banging your head against the uh, panel above you. Uh, so we see actions where the captain made uh, control movements. We have a split elevator. So on a commercial airplanes, the elevators will split. Either you pull a handle and manually split them, or in this case, Boeing has a spring-loaded uh, clutch sort of setup, where if you apply 70 pounds of thrust, thrust 70 pounds of force, it will split. And that's what uh, we saw that that had occurred. So nose down on the uh, cap or the first officer side, nose up on the captain's side. And then uh, that does nothing. It yeah. cancels each other out. We see a little bit of roll movement in it because there's essentially uh, like ailerons in the back of the airplane now because we have one up, one down. So that's a... Uh, we see the, the actions, and then when they do pop out of the clouds, then they both go to uh, both full up. And they end up pulling um, over four Gs in a 767 with the flaps out. Yeah. Now, as a testament to Boeing's strength and why I love Boeing's, the plane didn't break until it hit the water. Yeah. Okay. It stayed together with four plus G's with the flaps out. Well, I would say Boeing engineers designed well in excess of their 
requirements in, in this case. And um, so they, they were starting to recover, but there was just not enough time. Uh, and I think that what you have is a cognitive lockup on the first officer's side. When somebody gets under a supermental stress, sometimes the people's brains will just shut mm -hmm. down. Um, you have a, certainly on the captain's side, a huge stress event and a much greater narrowing of focus. So you're not going to see as much as you would under normal circumstances when you're under a high deal of stress. That's why um, when you go through training in the military, they run you through simulations of being shot at. I'm sure you've been shot at. Mm -hmm. you, you might have been shot at for real, but you know you went through training beforehand to desensitize yourself. Same thing in this flying experiences, you know, the desensitization through the flight training. And um, I just don't think there was enough uh, yeah. experience in, the, in there. And I'm not saying that it needed to be experienced, but there, there wasn't enough experience to overcome that initial gap. And he sees, okay, I got to fix this nose low thing. And the rest of it got cut out as he was trying to save the aircraft, but yeah, too little time in this case, it was a, yeah, the, a very the whole accident. Event. The whole accident sequence began at about six, just over 6,000 feet. Right. And then all of this happened Correct. fairly, fairly quickly in IMC until they broke out underneath. Yeah. When we look at the math, did our math on the, uh, the traces from the time that the nose was pitched over to the time the plane was into the ground was 18 seconds. Wow. And, you know, you fear five to 10 seconds to recover from a startle experience. And I don't think it, even if they, and there was, we think in about six to eight seconds, there started to recovery uh, from the captain's side. But, but we don't, you know, our opinion, and I'm not a technical engineering expert, I'm not a flight test engineer or anything like that, but uh, I don't think there's enough time or altitude to, to make that work. It's not a. Yeah. It's not an F-16. That's a large transport category aircraft, and it takes time and space to recover. You know, we, when we do stalls in a normal experience, we can lose two, 3,000 feet, and this was well in excess of that in terms of descent rates. Yeah. So, so at the end of the day, as far as takeaways, right, which is the reason we do investigations, it's um, – so we can disseminate the information, get a less, get lessons learned as we can see, you know, recommendations have already been uh, considered by the FAA. So, so looking back on the whole thing, uh, do you think we're going to have a couple of takeaways? So Colgan air, like you mentioned that now in the industry, we just know it as Colgan, right? There was this one accident that, that really changed the face of, pilot qualifications we'll call it amongst other things crew rest and, and some other things but do you think i guess kind of a two-part question one would this be different had there been passengers and two do you think this will be a an event which will spur positive change in the faa yeah, I think it is. I'll, I'll go in reverse order. So the has it spurred change, positive change in FAA? Yes. There's a PR, NPRM for the pilot record database that has been issued finally after more than more than a decade when it was supposed to originally have been required. 
to been put into action. There's been one in testing for a long time. Um, there are, yeah, there's still problems with that, that notice of proposal rulemaking. It's going to create an entire new regulation set for all certificated operations, uh, public operators, so people that operate on behalf of the government and larger flight departments, which I think they, they set the bar pretty low at two airplanes, but <laughs> that is, um, that's going to incre- increase the amount of recording of data. Now, that should, in, in theory, help out with hiring, and that will also um, maybe make companies be a little bit better about their their data keeping and, and record keeping and, and how they, they monitor stuff. There are a lot of challenges with the system and the um, the big change I think we'll see really is, is with this event uh, is a much keener eye and the hiring practices of companies. I think, you know, you have the big guys, the, uh, the Acme's and the, uh, the Acme Norse and whatever the other names were that uh, that, that other show uses, <laughs> um, that they have various levels of, um, you know, we kind of jokingly call them astronaut testing programs, um, but there's some logic to it. And when you come down to some of the, the smaller operators, it's just not feasible to run these large operations of, of all this testing, uh, not necessarily feasible to do simulator testing because simulators, while cheaper than an airplane, are not cheap. They're very expensive yeah. time uh, to use a full motion simulator. Um, but it's going to much keener eye on the person's background and their uh, their training progress, and I think hopefully in the training programs that they're going to be monitored to a much greater level. I think that's an important part of the big takeaway of this. You know, should you be worried if this is a passenger airplane would this have been a lot different oh my god yes um it would have been uh, this would not have been uh you know back page news even when the max crash happened right afterwards mm-hmm. uh, it would have been big because it's a big airplane and you know you would have had probably 250 300 people on this plane if it had been loaded up and that's a uh one sad aspect of aviation is that most of our regulations are written in blood. And uh, in the case of cargo, there's not a lot of blood there. It's only the pilot's blood that gets spilled. Uh, one of the things that you'll, that was in, in brought up in the investigation during, during some of the uh, videos part of it was the rest aspect of it. Now we can't point any jerk fingers at rest here uh, in this particular case, mostly because of lack of data, but the schedules and cargo operations oftentimes flip back and forth. It's not just FedEx's operation where it's all night. We're a day-night operation. You know, my, well, my flights usually involve day and night all in one flight. Uh, so you're reversing your time of day you're operating, say, and we do 24-hour rest. So it sounds good on paper, a 24-hour rest, but that means you're going to work when you went to sleep the night before. So now you got to try and cram two sleeps in in a 24 hour period and show up rested. It's a challenge. Mm-hmm. Not saying it can't be done. Uh, it takes almost effort and uh, professional sleeping skills. 
that my uh, wife just dislikes incredibly from my perspective because I can pretty much stop and fall asleep at any point in time during a day if I choose to. But I've literally have trained myself almost to do that. Yeah. Um, and it's hard on your body and hard on your mental acuity. And, and, and if you're suffering from fatigue, especially a, a long-term fatigue, it does really affect your mental ability. Um, you know, as we were talking before we started doing the interview side of this, uh, I'm coming off of having a lot of days off, um, between uh, vacation and, and, uh, getting some time off because of being out on the road for so long because of the COVID stuff. And I was, I've noticed great change in my mental acuity and, uh, wakefulness and all that in the last couple of weeks, because I've been on a regular schedule sleeping normally in the same yeah. time zone on the same, you know, on the same continent for a long time. And, uh, I think that if that gets looked at a little bit more too, and maybe that we get a single set of rules for cargo and passengers out of this eventually, which I wish they had made that recommendation, but you know, that's a big ask in this, this world environment. Yeah. Maybe we'd see, uh, see some improvements on the whole thing, but you know, Passengers, rightfully so, they're going to get more scrutiny. There's a lot more lies sure. at risk. But, you know, this incident could have taken out hundreds of lies on the ground, but for a few seconds time difference. It hit the water and missed a, a wonderful town in Texas, Anuak. And I have to give a big shout out to Anuak because the people of Anuak and that surrounding communities were incredible for us during the investigation. The uh, sheriff there, Sheriff Hawthorne, was super in terms of uh, communicating information to us because you know he was responsible for you know the recovery efforts of uh, you know the bodies of our of our lost pilots. Yeah, and it's a it's a hard thing for us, but a right you know right thing to do. So again, a huge shout out to that town and that 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 county down there for helping us out. Yeah, that's great. I, re I remember seeing him on the initial uh, press conferences. and um, Yeah, it's one of these things that uh, it's almost like a movie set, isn't it? Where you have a small town with a major uh, national level event like that. Absolutely. Um, the sheriff was uh, uh, your best classic movie set Texas sheriff. Cowboy boots, Perfectly polished, big, wide cowboy belt, uh, the hat, and uh, just cool. This is just a cool cat coming in the yeah. door, and he just he just walked in and he owned the place, and he looked the part, acted the part, he was <laughs> the part. Um, so again, I mean, he was amazing in terms of uh, what he did with us. I mean, he was great about communicating to us as the individual, as the pilot representatives yeah. there in the investigation giving us a specific, you know, updates just to us before he get to the public uh, briefings when we had these closed briefings. And, um, you know, they, they were incredible people there. And, and, the, and the, the community groups out there also, you know, they all stepped up. They had this huge influx of people coming in to do this investigation and recovery efforts. And they were fighting over one another to, to who's going to bring out food to us. And yeah. you know, when you get, gumbo on the texas gulf coast it's a good thing it's the real deal and, and it's <laughs> it's amazing it's amazing when it comes out in like 25 gallon barrels 
out of the back of a pickup truck and that's just one of the multiple ones they brought over to the site so uh but anyways i mean it's there were some amazing things amazing aspects of this accident but the uh very hard experience overall and something you know, i think we can talk about on a different time yeah, at a later uh, point yeah absolutely well, i know one of one of the highlights of my career um was getting to go to the NTSB offices where they analyzed the cockpit voice recorders and the flight data recorders. Um, I was working on a project that was a uh, basically an audio enhancement tool um, that the military was going to share with the NTSB to make them more effective at analyzing those recorders. And, and I got to see some of the rooms, some of the rooms in Washington, D.C., where these investigations take place. But it really is a team effort. And I've, I've said this a couple of times, I think, on the podcast. But, but an investigation of something like this, in your case, you were representing the union. I mean, there's, it is a whole team that coalesces together from aircraft manufacturer to aircraft component manufacturers to the airline or the operator itself to, to federal, federal agents, I suppose. Yeah, absolutely. When we... Um walked into this uh, you know when I found out about the accident I was actually not too far away from where I'm at here in my attic recording studios <laughs> in the, uh, the lowlands of the uh, Netherlands and uh, I flew across over there and uh, got off an airplane and watched the NTSB uh, press briefing the first press briefing and then walked into the command post briefing immediately afterwards and that was overwhelming because uh, you have the FBI there every single time there's an accident uh, you had state local authorities all there, fire department uh, you know poli- local police and sheriffs then you had uh, General Electric you had Boeing you had uh, and not uh, General Electric was one person Boeing had multiple people there uh, Rockwell Collins one of the main manufacturers for components was there and Atlas was there with multiple people that representing the airline and you have this huge stuff. And then as you go further into the investigation, then you start going even further and deeper into these component manufacturers. So um, manufacturers of the, the servos for the uh, hydraulic units and stuff, those were all involved in later parts of the investigation and all come together in this huge effort to, to put this all together. It's all being orchestrated by the NTSB and in regards to your uh, audio enhancement tool, it was used on here, I think. As I know, they did some audio enhancement uh, on the CVR to pull out some of the particular sounds because our, our CVR um, representative had to go back up and listen to some new stuff and uh, concur with uh, mm-hmm. some of the findings they had done up there. So, yeah, it's a huge effort. And uh uh, honor to, to work with these people. They're, they're really neat and amazing people up there that work for the NTSB and they brought in people from all around the country uh, from different offices to support it at different points in time. Um, I mean, there's people that, you know, they're like rain man for airplane parts. Uh, it's, it's amazing. I look at this piece of sheet metal and go, Oh, that's from this section of this section on the airplane. How do you know that? Well, cause it's this thickness and this separation of rivets. Okay. Wow. <laughs> um, I eventually learned these skills. Yeah. <laughs> it's mind blowing when you walk into these things and how, how smart these people are and uh, 
really gnarly to work with all the all different parties involved and and as a i was a what we call a party uh coordinator so uh, i headed up my group so i kind of ran my little three ring circus inside the large three ring circus and uh you know mostly just stepped in to help out where i could and it's uh it's quite experience to see all this different stuff moving and then you start getting reports when uh, the final reports come out stuff that you see in the docket and you read some of the stuff and you're like wow okay there's a there's a lot of effort and smartness there going on that it's far and above my skill level so we appreciate yeah. all the work that was done all right john i think that's a good stopping point i i know this was difficult for you we've been talking since since the day it happened actually about this yeah. Um, you know, I, I wanted to reach out and make sure that everybody in, uh, both your, your actual family and then your work family was, was doing all right. But, uh, I'm sure these, these, um, folks were, were lucky to have you as part of the team. And, you know, I've, I've known you for quite a, I was lucky to have them. (laughs) There we go. An absolutely amazing, uh, an amazing, wasn't it? That's, uh, I mean, so much to take from that. Uh, interestingly enough, uh, now Mike was saying, sort of, Nev, uh, Matt, when you when they have, uh, you know, when when this has been done, it's like ex- explain the process of audio enhancement. So it's um, it's uh, a way of uh, doing the. Um, uh, there's I think of, it's when they, when they had the, the the cockpit CVR, Matt, is when they're trying to enhance the sound quality so they can hear about or they can hear in detail more what's yes, going on on the absolutely. flight deck. Uh, so obviously for the show. You do a lot of work with the audio and the sound quality, and I think what what uh, Mike is pointing at is is what kind of programs or software or mm. things can you use to enhance audio? Yeah, I mean, there's there's lo- it's mainly filters essentially. That's one of the things that you're trying to do. You're trying to isolate. Uh, isolate is probably the best way to do do that. Um, it's uh, I, I'm not sure. It's uh, there's. Uh, uh, John, I'm going to ask you to stop talking for a minute, if that's okay, because I'm not sure you're coming out of the source you think you're coming out of. Uh, there's uh, a few uh, hiccups with, um, like, filtering and stuff is something that I was going to sort of talk about. Really, as I say, it's, uh, enhancing is literally that way. You're you're trying to to like t- take out any background noises or or, or things like that. Um, where you know and to amplify if you like so it's a way of amplifying so you take out as much background noise as you can and then in you know increase the volume essentially is probably the best way to describe it. there's a, a much more technical way of de- of describing it it's uh, and unfortunately we've lost nev um, but he may be able to explain it slightly better than actually, actually matt one of the things that our very kind patreons uh, enabled us to get is sitting in front of you in the studio which is a, mm. is it is in itself an audio enhancing um device isn't it yeah it no it, it is i mean it's it's just a to be fair the focus right box is more of a, a quality interface between the pc mm. and these it's a glorified sound card gets you, rid it, of all the you noises. don't really yeah i mean it, it's not that's not really uh prevalent to what this is but armando said in the in in our little group chat that you can answer micah's uh question in much more detail next week so armando will be able to give you a more a more um accurate uh description of that as i say but in a rough nutshell it's it's all about filtering out background noise and then you can pick out the bits that you you're looking at the waveform 
basically and picking out the bits that are, are more prevalent to to what you're trying to to listen to but, uh, but a massive details. thanks i should yeah. say a massive thanks to john and armando for putting that together because it was absolutely brilliant i me and matt and all the crew had the chance to listen to this earlier mm. in the week and it's really 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 good so um big uh, big thanks to john and armando for putting that together very much so yeah absolutely some some other things in the pipe work coming up soon hopefully so we look forward to those mm. as well uh competition uh carlos just remind them very quickly uh, yeah because we've only got that. a week left haven't we before it is yeah. literally a week and whilst we've been on the air we've had another entrant uh, mm. send or sent entrance into the competition so big thanks uh, to you for that chris marsh uh you've uh, got between now and next week episode 330 to send us in that piece of feedback about aviation in your life could be anything from a short story about how your first uh, delve into aviation or something that has really inspired you or you've seen in aviation and thought that's amazing put it pen to paper or email i should say and or send us an audio or voice message yeah in we don't mind what it is we don't mind. We um, don't mind how we receive it. If uh, email is fine, and we'll, um, and we'll read it out on your behalf. So you know, if, you, if you're not feeling confident in doing, it, there's no excuse. And there is an, incredi- an incredible 150 pound plane reclaimers voucher that is up which for is awesome. grabs, and it is available to. They'll, they'll ship anywhere in the world. So it, it is literally. Uh, it's available to everyone um, t- to use. So uh, do. Uh, do write in, write in by email. Say podcast at plaintalkinguk.com. That's podcast at plaintalkinguk.com for your entries. entries. <laughs> you can send a, like an audio file, for example. You could do a voice memo uh, and record it using the voice memo thing within in WhatsApp. And the WhatsApp number is plus four four seven five seven two two four nine one six six. That's plus four four seven five seven two two four nine one six six. Also, the form on our website allows you to upload a file to us mm. as well now so you can uh, also use the form on the website take yourself to www.plaintalkinguk.com uh, and there's a contact us page take yourself there you can do it you can do it there and you can go on that website when you win that voucher if you win the voucher and purchase yourself an entire row of economy class seats with everything the armrests everything yeah, literally nice. anything. Yeah, 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 it's all good. Yeah, uh, it's so good. panic, as they say. It's good. <laughs> yeah. uh, that, look, it's uh, time to wrap up, mate. So um, let, let's get that done. It's, uh, I, sorry, I, I missed that. John said something in my ear there. And yeah, we've got, got uh, coming up on next week's show, uh, for those of you who may have heard of a certain Plain Crazy Down oh, Under podcast. yes, yes, back in Next the week's yes. show, uh, we have got Grant and Steve, and they had a chat with Matt this week. They did. And uh, that's coming up on next week's yeah. show, which so is going to be many, awesome. Many of us miss uh, Plain Crazy Down Under, and of course that yep. has unfortunately been retired. But there are some exciting new projects in the work, essentially. Mm. And they'll tell us all about what they've been working on and what they've been up to and also what lockdown is like in um, in Australia as well. And that, that made for some interesting listening as well. But very excited to be joined by Steve because we don't hear from Steve very often. We, mm. hear, we hear from Grant, which is awesome. Uh, but it was so great to have a chat with Steve. And in fact, actually, after the call, uh, myself and Steve were talking for so long afterwards. Uh, That's good. Yeah, absolutely. The guy, seriously, if you need, I'll tell you what, talking about audio enhancement if you need anybody's uh, anybody's help doing a podcast have you Steve seen his studio man. i know it's incredible steve studio is amazing I, I had a guided tour my friend i had a guided tour of his amazing studio uh, but yeah it's a really good chat um we've got that to play out next week really looking forward to it 
So, social media links before we finish. Facebook, Twitter, Instagram. Search for us on the social medias, Plain Talking UK. Also, don't forget that WhatsApp number, plus four four seven five seven two two four nine one six six, And that won't wake me up at 3 a.m. in the morning. And yeah, you can no. also email the show, <laughs> podcast at plaintalkinguk.com. And don't forget to take yourselves over to our website, allaws.plaintalkinguk.com. You can go on there, look on the store. You can buy yourself a PTUK t-shirt we've got nice fresh new ones in uh, which are all amazing so you can go on yourself and buy a t-shirt you can also buy yourself a mug um someone has been and actually brought a mug actually this they week, have yes they? richard adams has bought one today yes, yeah bought a mug you can buy yourself a mug and don't forget as well there are the links on our website to do your shopping on amazon which i'm sorry matt i've only done it once this week Rubbish. but there we go Rubbish. uh you can and you, you can also become a patreon of the show and help us to put out the content we do each week by becoming a patron and donating anything from a dollar to, well, whatever you find on the back of the sofa, really. So you can click on the links there. And also the PayPal link, if you want to make a one-time donation, you can also click on the PayPal link, which is also fantastically amazing. Uh, Thanks thanks. also to Jack, who joined us at the top of the show. Uh, If you want to follow his uh, journey, shall we say, uh, on Instagram, uh, he's also on Twitter as well. Basically, search for Jack Jenner Hall. Uh, Instagram, it's at Jack underscore Jenner underscore 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 hall um so as i say jack jenner hall all with underscores in between those words uh and as i say if you search for jack jenner hall on twitter you'll find it very easily because uh the uh the, the the tap on the the the, the strap line on this thing does actually say the norfolk gliding club so uh, uh, you'll find it you'll know you found the right guy so a big thanks to everyone who's joined us in the YouTube chat room tonight. Thank you for joining us tonight. And a big thanks as well to everyone who downloads the show as an audio podcast. And don't forget, if you do through iTunes, give us a little review on there because that would be amazing. So that is where we're going to bring episode number 329 of the show to a close. Big thanks to all our guests. Big thanks to Nev for joining us as well. A big thanks to Matt. And a big thanks to Armando for sending his military in. And also not forgetting a huge thank Thanks to our producer, John, for all his hard work this week. So from me, Carlos, here in my PTUK home studio, and Matt over in the master PTUK (laughs) studios. Have a great weekend. Take care, everyone. See you later. Bye-bye.